The following audio is presented by Grace Church. For more about us, visit discovergrace.com, or you can download our free app by searching Grace Church Orlando on your phone or tablet. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Mike, for leading that uncomfortable but very kind uh, show of appreciation. And I can promise you I have gained uh, more in this uh, interaction than you have. I kind of joke that I feel like once I started coming here, my circle of friends just doubled. It's like instantly I had twice as many friends as we had before. And uh, I've loved coming, loving, loved getting to know uh, you guys more. Um, another thing has been so that I've loved is... Uh, at first, my middle daughter would come with me every week, and that was became like our special time together, like in the car, where just riding here and riding back, it was kind of daddy-daughter, kind of special moment, and uh, she felt so big and special and was bragging about it so much, The my older daughter started to become jealous that she doesn't get to ride in the car <laughs> with daddy, so now she's been coming, so that's been a sweet time uh, that I've been given in this season, and uh, I have to be honest, every Sunday Sunday when I leave, I go back home and I take out my sermon notes and I do some correct corrections and some tightening and I think, oh, that did not work well. <laughs> we got to scratch that. And every sermon I've preached at Lake Nona in the evening has been better <laughs> because I preached it here first. So I am a little worried about what's going to happen next week when... Um, they encounter the real me. And uh, so I've gained just as much as well. And we're excited. We're excited for, for what God is going to do in this campus uh, with new pastor coming in. We kind of really feel like you're poised uh, to take that next step. We're excited about what God's doing at our campus. We're actually transitioning from the evening to morning services next week. So when we started this in February, I kind of said, you know, I'll be here till August 13th. That's as much. And then we move. And so God just orchestrated those things just perfectly. So it'll be seamless. And we're moving to the morning and a new neighborhood, and so we really feel like God's just kind of priming us uh, for some good things. So we're we're excited, and as we have been doing, we are going through John chapter nine. So if you have your Bibles or grabbed one that was uh, in the seats when you came in, we're going to be looking at John chapter nine. And as you turn there, when uh, growing up, I was a, a gym rat, uh, played basketball, and if you don't know what that term is, that means you uh, a gym rat is somebody that uh, cannot be kept out of gyms or places where you can play basketball. You're like a rat. You'll sneak into all you need is a quarter size hole, and somehow you'll get in there and you'll start playing. And so in middle school, high school, I was a gym rat. We'd go up, we'd play anywhere, anywhere there was like a a hole with a ball that we could throw it into, and. Uh, uh, one of the things I love about sports and uh, is, is kind of the ultimate meritocracy. And one says it doesn't matter who your daddy was or how much money you have or your education. Like when you're, when you're in the arena, the only thing that matters is can you perform. And oftentimes it'll bring together the most unlikely friends. And so uh, one of my good friends, now you kind of got to get the picture, uh, a guy that him and I, we would go, we'd travel all over kind of our metro Atlanta area, and we would play anywhere we could play. And his name was Ramonte Chapman. And so me, you have me, I'm this size, this height, but 70 pounds lighter. And Ramonte was 5'2", 
about 80 pounds. Now, this is the 90s, so you kind of got the picture. I mean, I'm kind of wearing shorter shorts. I'm like the kind of the buttoned-up, straight-laced, white kid, you know, from, you know, middle class, going to church, really not liking to talk to anybody. And then Ramonte was, he was this black kid who wore the big gold chains, and like, he had tattoos before it was cool. And he was only 80 pounds, but had the biggest mouth of anybody I'd ever met in my entire life. And we were partners because for some reason we just had this, um, this soul connection and we were on the basketball court together. It, w- it was magic. <laughs> you just had to take my word for it. <laughs> it's a lot better in my memory. It was magic. We, and we would go, to, we'd go all over these places and my mom be nervous about where we're going and we'd play anywhere. And there's who knows what kind of things Robate was doing on the side, didn't ask questions. And uh, his sister would often come with us and her name was Tanisha. And Tanisha was four years younger than Romante. And the only person I've ever met in my life who had a bigger mouth than Romante was Tanisha. And she would come in, we'd go in places and she's like, 13, she's three feet tall, and she come walking in these places like, oh, you chumps about to go down, my brother and his friend, they're going to, you know, and she's talking all this smack, and we're like, can you, can you stop, can you do something with her? And so she would just go, and kind of in our community, she in one sense was kind of a notorious, you know, sinner. And so everybody at school, you know, I mean, she was a wild child. They both came from a very difficult home life, difficult background, difficult situations, um, just a real challenging, challenging life. And uh, Ramonte never, I mean, he knew I was kind of a church-going kid, kind of one of the good straight-laced kids, and he would never really come into that world with me. But Tanisha had started coming to church with us, and then she became friends with some of the other uh, kind of middle school girls at the time. And at youth camp one year, um, she accepted Christ, and she responded and repented of her sins. It was kind of this amazing moment where she had kind of this joy flooded into her heart that she had never known before. And uh, it was amazing, and kind of she was, you know, kind of in our little country school, she was kind of like the, the great prodigal kid, the wild kid, and so it, it caused a big stir. And uh, we were so excited and, you know, kind of cheered her on and all these kind of things. But we didn't quite appreciate or realize what exactly that would cost for her. So here's someone coming from a world that's not our world, living a life that's not, we can't really understand or sympathize, and things were really difficult for her. I mean, she came back home, and the people in her home were not happy about this. She was doing things for them that all of a sudden she didn't think it was right and stopped doing, and that wasn't allowed. And so she enters into this kind of her social friends that she had uh, were not happy that this was going on in her life. And I remember the um, one of the saddest things I've seen is the very next year we're at youth camp again, and Tanisha had no problem telling people how she felt. And she kind of stood up around you know, this youth camp and was with tears in her eyes said, you lied to me. Y'all lied to me. You told me my life was going to be better. You said everything would be better when I came to Christ, and it's not. It's worse. You lied to me. And it broke our heart. I was like, well, we didn't know how to respond. I mean, she was, because of her commitment to Christ, she was encountering and experiencing things we had no idea even how to understand. And we didn't know what to say to her then. She kind of left, and I'm not sure what happened to her. And I wish at that time um, would have had a little more wisdom to be able to bring her in. Or I wish we would have had the man from John chapter 9 there who could have come beside her and said, you know, come here, child. 
It's hard. I know exactly what it's like when you enter into, you know, I know what it's like to be born into a situation where you're born into struggle and sorrow and you have to fight and you have to scrap and you have to just fight for your very survival. And then I know what it's like to be, uh, experience transformation from Christ's hand and have light and joy flood into your heart. And then I know what it's like to be betrayed by your neighbors and abandoned by your family and have it be hard on you. And so I wish he could have come along and just, just held her and helped her. And that's actually what we're going to see in John chapter 9. So what I want to do is let's imagine, let's kind of be imaginative and just use our imagination to enter into the story of this man and say, what type of advice would he give someone like Tanisha, who in essence is the very first in her family, who's having to create this almost like um, secure the beachhead for Christianity in her world? So to kind of change the analogy, think like beaches of Normandy, D-Day. Somebody had to storm that beachhead and be the first, the first on the ground to take it. And uh, you ever hear uh, soldiers from World War II talk about the ones they talk about with the almost, almost um, they won't even speak because they think so highly of them. It's those guys who were the tip of the spear, the very first on the beaches who got there first and struggled and sacrificed, ultimately most of them, to take it and secure it so everybody else could come in safely. And in some sense, Tanisha, I mean, she was being that for her family. She was the first one in, the kind of tip of the spear and God taking and entering in. And so was this man. And what would he say to her? So we're going to kind of walk through this story and we're going to uh, look at it from that angle. What, what advice would he give to her and then us when we find ourselves in similar situations. So we're in John chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 34. And this entire section, um, you need to hear it as a formal um, interrogation between legal and religious authorities and then kind of witnesses. So you need to almost think courtroom setting where people are drawn before the authorities and then there's uh, legal uh, interrogation back and forth. And there's four of them. The first one is, is somewhat informal between the neighbors and the blind man. And then there's three with the authorities, one with him, then one with his parents, and then one with him again. So that's kind of how we're going to move. And as we do this, there's three things I want us to see. Uh, the first one, I want us to look at the neighbors. Because I think one of the things uh, he would tell Tanisha, he says, I understand. So let's look at how the neighbors, he says, I know what it's like to not be known by those who know you. And so look at this first engagement between the neighbors and him, verse 8 to 12. So the background of the story is there's a man who's been born blind, uh, and he's begging at the temple during this great festival of tabernacles, probably from live somewhere else, was brought in for the week to, um, to beg, and then Jesus heals him. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, but it is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So you kind of got to enter into some of the, the comedic nature of this scene. He has all his neighbors and all these people around him, and they're saying, wait a second, is this the guy who used to sit and beg? And some are saying, yeah, that's him. No, that's not him. We know that's not him. And he's like, yeah, no, it is me. How do I prove it? Look, it, I am that guy. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered him, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. 
So that first section, let's look at the neighbors. And he would encourage Tanisha, he'd say, I know what it's like to not be known by those who know you. And what you see here uh, is his neighbors come and the neighbors want to know, these are his community, the people around him, what's happened to you? And they want to know first, they don't, even, they don't even know who he is. The first question is, who are you? Then what happened to you? And one of the things I find fascinating about this whole story is he remains anonymous. We never get his name. And names are always significant in the Bible. There's some, um, sometimes names are used, especially in the Gospels, as uh, like ancient footnotes. So they'll give you people's names. So like Mark will say, you know, Simeon who carried Jesus across, and he's, that's Rufus's daddy. And you're like, why does he tell us he's Rufus's daddy? It's because they knew Rufus. And the idea was you go ask him. These are eyewitness accounts. So you get names uh, so you could go ask them. You also get names because they confer dignity uh, on characters. So it's very significant, like in Exodus chapter 1, that Moses tells you the name of the two midwives who protect the Hebrew babies, but he doesn't tell you the name of Pharaoh. Because he says, in God's eyes, these are the people that matter. These are the people who are important. And then often names will tell you people's character, what they're like. Now, it's very important. In this, in this whole chapter, he's not named, but he's presented as kind of the ideal disciple. He says, this is what a true disciple is like. And one of the reasons he's not named is because John wants you to look and not get caught up on his story, but actually see through his story and see your own story. See what you can learn. He's, in one sense, what a true disciple is liked. But notice verse 9. I love this. Notice how confused they are. They're confused. Some say it was him. Others say it is not him. And uh, those who claim to know him don't actually know him. And if you've ever lived, you know, it's probably this way here. If you've ever lived like in a small town, one of the things that amazed me about small town living is everybody knows everybody and yet nobody knows anybody. So everybody knows like who, who your parents were, or, like they know your name, they know where you live, they know the dumb thing you did in 10th grade and they'll never let you forget about it, but they don't actually know you. And that's what you see here. These people don't even recognize him and they're arguing about who he is. He's not really known. But in their defense, in one sense, he has been changed. And this is kind of the beautiful thing of what the gospel does. In one sense, the gospel, uh, when it transforms you, in some ways, you're still you, but then in other ways, you're completely new. And it's one of the beautiful ways that it is. So for example, like I can't sing at all. And when Christ transformed me, now all of a sudden, I'm not going to be like a great singer. I don't get up and sing. I still can't sing. But things that have been unleashed in me, um, not only was I a gym rat in high school, I was a just total knucklehead. And you know, the, the dumb things that kids brag about. But I used to brag that I'd made it all the way through high school without ever reading a book. I mean, can you, like, why would you brag about such an idiotic thing? And I would brag about that. Now, if you ever come to my house now, it's just wall to wall, it's filled with books. And one of the things when Christ really got a hold of me is there was this uh, desire, this intellectual desire to learn and to love knowledge was always repressed. And then he kind of opened it up and it unleashed. And see, I'm now, uh, because of his grace, becoming more of who I was meant to be, not less. So in some ways, you're not changed at all. In other ways, you're completely made new. And what you see here is he's been completely made new. And they don't recognize him. It's like the story of Augustine, one of the great church fathers, uh, fourth century. Augustine, um, brilliant, brilliant philosopher, and he wrestled with the truth claims of Christianity. And for years, he was always kind of holding back, even though he knew it was true. And the real reason was he was holding back is because he had um, kind of cleaned it up for, <laughs> for the kids. He had, uh, he had certain 
relationships that he knew if he came to Christ, he'd have to give up and didn't want to give it up. Said, I actually like this too much. And so that was always a stumbling block. It was never intellectual. It was something else. And finally, when Christ got a hold of him and he had the courage to give those things up and turn away, um, years later, he encountered one of his female friends and she kind of came running up to him. She goes, Augustine, it is I. And he says, I know, but my dear, it's no longer I. He says, I've been changed in a, in a tra- uh, tra- transformative way. And that's what you see here. But the first thing that he would tell Tunisia is that your neighbors, are, they're your friends, a social group, they're not going to recognize you. They're not going to know you. But the truth is they probably never really did know you that well to begin with. Now let's look at the second thing, or the final thing. Look in 13. Look what they do. In 13, they brought him to the Pharisees. They turn him in. They know there's been a legal declaration that if anybody sides with this man, Jesus, or admits that he's the Messiah, you have to be turned into the authorities. This is a capital or an offense that could be capital. And so they actually turn him in. He's betrayed by his neighbors. So he would tell her, just be ready. Be ready to be sold out by those around you. But now look at the second thing. I want to move up in the story and look what his parents do. What you see with the parents, he would tell her, I know what it's like to not be protected by those who are supposed to protect you. Look what they do in 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight. So first they interrogate him and then they don't believe his testimony. Then they go get the parents. So let's look at that. The Jews didn't believe in 18 that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son? You who are who you say was born blind. Just hear the, the, the it just kind of drips with animosity. You say he was born blind. Who are you really to say? They're like, well, uh, we, I gave birth to him. I have some say in, yeah. Um, you who say he was born blind. How does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. You ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. So you just see instantly they did distance themselves. They said, we don't know. We don't know what happened. He is, he's a grown man. He can talk for himself. Do not come to us. And you can see John tells you it's because they were afraid. So there's a couple things here. Do you notice the authorities think the whole thing's a sham? Like it's some kind of sham that's put on to deceive the people. They're like, we know he's not really blind. He was just, it was just a sham. And then they say, uh, we know that's our son. Now, this is one of the key lines that we'll hear throughout the whole thing. Because what Jesus is bringing is spiritual sight. And what spiritual sight is, is knowledge. It's what do you know? What do you know and what you don't know? So we know that he's our son, but we don't know how he got his sight or who healed him, how he's been changed. But one of the key ideas is, look in 22, why are they afraid? Why are they willing to, in essence, distance themselves from the son? I mean, these parents, like in that world, when he's born blind, that would be devastating for him and the family. There were no, you know, we lived near Louisville School for the Blind. We were in Louisville, and it was so cool because all the different structures and different things uh, that they had created and worked into the system uh, so they could live productive and wonderful um, lives. But that's not this world. If you're in this world, it's going to be very hard on you. He can't work. He's always um, going to have to beg to be able to receive any type of uh, 
money, financial compensation, it's very tough. Who knows what his parents have sacrificed for him their life? And yet here, they distance. Why? So you kind of have to think about the setting and the, the social setting. You know, this is one of the three major feasts where people are all going to come to Jerusalem. And do you notice what the threat is? It says, if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he's put out of the synagogue. And this thing you might think, hmm, that's strange. Because they're in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. The temple, there's no synagogues around the temple. You don't need a synagogue because a synagogue was where you would go if you were um, Jewish on the Sabbath if you couldn't go to the temple. But if you're at the temple, you don't need a synagogue because the temple's there. So the synagogues are the places out in the other communities where that represented, in essence, the temple. It was the hub for the community life for everyone who's Jewish. And what they're saying is that this this feast, thousands and thousands of people in their community would come to Jerusalem for the week, and then they'd leave, and they're saying anybody who comes and confesses that Jesus is Christ, when you get back home, you're getting put out. You're getting put out of the synagogue. And for us, we live in an individualistic society where like if somebody's going to kind of excommunicate you or put you out, you say, well, that's no big deal. Like I can, I can go do my own thing somewhere else. Not in traditional societies. In traditional societies, your life is bound up in your community. And so in these worlds, if you get put out of the synagogue, you don't have any occupation. You can't get a job. You have no family. You probably can't eat. Your life becomes almost impossible to live. It's very similar to other communities that missionaries will talk about who go into India or places like the Middle East, where if somebody confesses Christ, like in Iran, they, there becomes a, you know, their life is in danger. They won't be able to work. They won't be able to stay with their community. It's one of the most important reasons why um, in the early church, it was so important that they gathered around and held everything in common. Because they recognized once you got put out of your synagogue, your community, you had no way to survive. And if they didn't come together and provide resources and jobs and family, you would lose your family. So you needed this family. And it's one of the reasons why um, you look like in, in the New Testament when it talks about ministries of mercy, doing things, um, you know, Matthew 25, 26, when Jesus talks about he's going to separate the, the sheep and the goats and the way it's going to tell is, did you give cold water? Did you feed? Did you visit in prison? Those aren't just random people who need food. It's your brother's. Because it's the recognition that once you're in this, once you confess Christ, you're going to get put out. And it's our job now to envelop you and give you a new society, a new family, a new community. So in one sense, the stakes are high. They know if they confess Christ, when they get back home, they're going to be, they're going to be put out. It's kind of like if you can imagine uh, if three times a year, everybody from kind of all over the country traveled to a big festival in Washington, D.C. And then while we were all there, there started to be some type of rioting, and then the FBI said, if you are there a part of the riot, we're going to tag you, and when you get back home, you're getting arrested. Uh, you would distance yourself. You would say, no, it wasn't me. It might have been, and so you can see why they're distancing them from their son. Like, look, he's a grown man. He's a knucklehead. We don't know what he's doing or where he's going. We can't be responsible. Don't blame us. But the sad thing is, he's not being protected by those who should protect him. So he would probably sit with Tanisha and say, I understand. They're just afraid. They're afraid. They don't understand. They feel like their life now is in danger because of what you're experiencing. But I know what it's like not to be protected, to be thrown under the bus by those who are around you and love you. Now let's get at the heart of the story and look at the third thing. The third thing is his encounter with the authorities. And uh, what I love here is he would tell her when he encounters the authorities, I also know what it's like to not be afraid 
of those who have power over you. Don't be afraid of those who have power over you. There's two key parts to this interaction. And uh, the first part is verses 13 through 17. So look what happens here. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. So the plot's going to thicken. Here's why they're angry with Jesus. They want to know, what, why did he do this on the Sabbath? It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, who do you say or what do you say about him? since he opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. So that first interaction, they're kind of setting, you're kind of setting the stage, the scene. What's that issue? So uh, they want to know, how are you changed? What happened to you? What did he really do? And they're, they're upset because on the Sabbath, he did something he wasn't supposed to do, they think. So what's the Sabbath all about? What's the point? The whole point of the Sabbath is the Sabbath is the the day we enter into God's presence and experience the renewal, restoration, and recreation. So the Sabbath's not just about rest. It's, uh, if you look at Genesis chapter one, all of creation culminates at the Sabbath and the Sabbath is the moment God's creation enters into his presence. And one of the things we call recreation, recreation is re-creation, It's things you do to delight and enjoy that reinvigorate you, give you a sense of life. And what you're supposed to experience on the Sabbath is spiritual renewal, recreation, where you you, you taste life. And what's amazing is this man's tasted it for the first time and they're upset. And the reason why they're upset is because Jesus made mud. They said, no, you're not supposed to make things on the Sabbath. You don't make. And he made mud and they're upset. But it's interesting, notice they're divided. Look at verse 16. I think that's important to keep in mind. The religious authorities are divided. Some said he's a sinner. Some says, no, a sinner couldn't do these things. And it's important. Even in the people of power, there was a division. So there's some like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who are on his side. But I think what the man would come and he'd tell Tunisia, he'd say, look, when people attack you, especially those people who have power over you, the people who seem like they have the money and the guns and the bling and the people that cause you to be afraid He would say, when they start to attack you, it's not personal. They're going after him. Look what they want to know in verse 17. What do you say about him? That's the question. Who do you think Jesus is? And they said, he's a prophet. He would tell her, just say what you know. Just tell him what you know. The beautiful thing about the story is he progressively learns more and more and more about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then notice round two. They send him away call in the parents, and then round two starts in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now that word called is, in it, you could translate it as subpoenaed. They went and subpoenaed him, they grabbed him, they said give glory to God. Every culture has a, um, basically an oath formula. Like ours is, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and know nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's what their give glory to God is. It's their oath formula. You now are having a formal legal proceeding and you must speak the truth. But notice what they say. We know that this man is a sinner. And now the tension that's going to run through is what do they know and what don't they know? And see here they say, look, they say, we know he's a sinner. And then look in verse 29. They say, we know that God has spoken through Moses. And then again, but we don't know where he's come from. 
So they're very confident, the authorities, they know he's a sinner. They know God has spoken through Moses and what Moses says is contradicting what he says, but they don't know where he's from. And one of the ironies of all of this is uh, they actually don't know. All the things they claim to know, they're wrong. And the things they claim they don't know, they could find out very easily. And this is one of the, the ideas behind spiritual darkness is you don't know what you think you know. Their problem is that they don't know what they don't know, and they actually don't know what they do know. Reminded the line from Ronald Reagan, uh, said the trouble with our liberal friends is they know so many things that are not true. And, uh, you know, whether you agree with him or not, that's a good line. And uh, this is true of the Pharisees. They know so many things that aren't true. They say, we know he's a sinner. Well, no, he's not. Uh, they're speaking that they understand his identity and his standing before God the Father. They said, we know that Moses has spoken to us and he's told us things different from him. Well, no, he hasn't. Jesus already told us that whatever Moses said pointed to him. They said, we don't know where he comes from. Well, that's very easy. All they had to do to find out is just ask him humbly. See, part of their hangup is that they know that the Messiah, when he comes, he can't come from Nazareth, but this guy comes from Nazareth, this podunk country hillbilly hick town. He can't come from there. He has to come from Bethlehem. And so they just assume that they know where he's from, but all they have to do is just ask, where are you from? So uh, the things they know, they actually don't know. The things they don't know, they're, they're, they could know very easily. And then that parallels with, notice what the man says, how he responds. 25, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I, that, that's above my pay grade. I don't know how God views him. But here's one thing I do know, and this is amazing. I do know that God doesn't respond to sinners. And then notice what he says. Here's one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. So whatever else you think or say about him, I know this. I am not the same. I was blind, but now I see. And then what I love in verse 30 through 33, he gets sarcastic with them. I mean, you kind of get to get the scene. This is a poor, used to be blind beggar who's now brought into the courtroom in front of the rich and the powerful in Jerusalem. They have the Roman soldiers. They have the money. They have all of the status. And then he gets sassy with them. Look at verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God will listen to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Said, here's an amazing thing. It's not rocket science. Look, I couldn't see, now I can. That should be an indication he's different. And kind of like that. I think Tanisha would really like that. He would probably look at her and smile and say, yeah, girl, you got a sharp tongue. Don't be scared to use it. But hear how you have to learn to use it. One of the things in spiritual sanctification, he would probably tell her, is God created you quick, witted, sharp, but then you don't use your tongue as a weapon, you use it as a scalpel so you can help people. But he would say, don't be afraid of them. When those people in power come at you, don't be afraid of them. Stand on what you know. You have to be ready. And then he would tell her, you got to be ready to be an outcast. Look what they do in 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. Actually, before that, where is it? 28, look what they say. They reviled him. They mocked him. He'd say, be ready, it's coming. They're going to mock you. And then finally, they, in 20, uh, 34, they cast him out. They gets casted out. 
And I think he said, be ready. It's coming. They're going to mock you. They're going to cast you out. And it's coming. And she might even, you know, poor little girl might say, well, how can, I, how can I be ready for that? How can I have the strength to be ready to experience those kind of things when the insults come, when, the, when, the, when they're mocking me and they're, they're, they're pushing me away? How can I be ready? And he might turn her attention to the next time he saw Jesus. Remember, this is September. He's in Jerusalem. The next time he sees Jesus will be in April. And what he'll see this time is those same religious leaders hurling insults not at him, but at Christ. He'll see them. He'll hear them mock him. And what he'll see this time is those same religious leaders not casting out him, but actually casting out Christ and throwing him out of the town and lifting him up and pinning him to a Roman pole for execution. And what I think he would tell her is say, look to him. Everything you're experiencing, he experienced too. He, would, he knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be reviled. He knows what it's like to be an outcast. You look to him and he'll strengthen you and sustain you. And I think he would encourage her and say, what you're trying to do is heroic. You, know, you actually are that first generation in. You're establishing the beachhead for Christ in your family. And if you think about it, there's kind of three places that you can be called to establish that beachhead. You can be called to establish it in your family. You can be called to establish it in your community. Or you can be called to establish it in your occupation. So some people come into families where there's no other Christian presence. They're not there. They have to be the first one in. And it's their job to kind of break down spiritual walls, break down barriers, break down stereotypes, fight generational sin. And it's hard. They're like Navy SEALs of the spiritual life. And it's hard. And they need encouragement. They need us to come around and help them. And so if that's you, if you're first generation in your family trying to establish that beachhead for godliness, just be encouraged. It's hard. And you might be thinking, man, I have no idea what to do with like my kids. I know I'm supposed to like bring them to church. I'm supposed to pray with them or we like read the Bible at night. Are we supposed to eat together? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? It's hard and we want to help you. And so, or you might be called to be kind of the first generation to establish the gospel in a community. One of the things we're trying to do with all of our church plants is trying to, you know, it's like be on the front lines of get the gospel into communities and places that it never was and, and ask him to transform a, a elementary school cafeteria. This is an elementary school cafeteria. Like kids, I don't even, I don't even want to think about what they do like on this floor throughout the week. And we transform it into a place where God is meeting with his people establishing that beachhead, the community of the gospel and the kingdom in a community. And it might be called, you're calling to do it in an occupation where you're going into the world of business, you're going into the world of finance, you're going into the world of medicine or law or education. And you're saying, man, I, I'm taking the gospel into this world where it's difficult, it's hard. You know, I'm amazed at the different uh, education the diff or the different um, occupational ways that the gospel has to get into. So if you're kind of in that first generation in any of those things, let this man encourage you. So you're in a difficult situation, but hold on, be strong, stand strong. He'll encourage you. Or if you're in established places. So for example, if you're a kid here in this room, or just if the kids are in this building, that means by default, they're not the first generation who have established these things. That means they're entering into a home that uh, is already trying to be a cradle of grace in their life. That's a beautiful thing. 
If you entered into a family where your parents, I mean, they weren't perfect, but if they tried, then be thankful because you don't have the experience like she would have. So be thankful for that. Or if you enter into an occupation or a community where there's a strong presence for the gospel for generations, then be thankful. Now part of your calling and your task is to hold the line. It's to hold it, to maintain it, or maybe in advance into other areas. But we are all going to have those callings in different situations. So I wish he could have been there, or I wish we knew his story a little better so we could have helped her in her time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel and your grace. We thank you for the way um, you... I thank you for calling people in certain situations, either in family, um, community, or in their occupation, to be at the very tip of the spear of where your, your kingdom is breaking into the dark world with all of its dysfunction and brokenness. So for anyone here in this room where they feel that, they feel like they are on the front lines of the spiritual war and they feel discouraged, they feel wounded and just broken down, pray that right now you would encourage them, you would strengthen them, um, give them the, the grace they need in their fight. And for those of us who enter into situations where, man, people have gone before us, there's been faithful heroic soldiers of your gospel who have established the beachhead in our families, in our communities, in our occupations. Let us be thankful. And if that's our calling, we ask that you help us to hold the line, to be strong, to be faithful, and to advance when we need to. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.